0: An Investor's Investor.
1: Weird.
0: Always thinking.
1: Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukomnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists. To see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very pleased to welcome Norm Eisen, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institute and one of the best legal and political minds in the country. That's not just my opinion. Politico called him one of the 50 people shaping American politics. For those of you who don't know Norm, he has a long history of putting country above self from his service as ambassador to the Czech Republic, special counsel and ethics czar in the white house under president Obama, special counsel for the house judiciary committee during the impeachment and trial of president Trump. He founded the nonprofit Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. He is a contributor to CNN. And as if that list isn't long enough for you, he was the basis for a Wes Anderson character in the movie, The Grand
0: Budapest Hotel. Welcome, Norm. Thank you, John. Thanks for that uh, completely uh, excessive and very generous introduction. I can hardly believe when I listen to all of that, I can hardly believe that you're talking about me.
1: Well, you have a very long and consistent record of achievement, but that being said, you did spring full blown for the head of Athena. And and we find that interesting people often have led interesting lives that lead to their prison status. It's rarely a straight line story. For instance, if I have my research correct, I think you're the son of immigrants and flipped a lot of burgers as a kid. So so what's your origin story? How did you become the person you are today?
0: Well, uh, indeed, um, my family business was a small hamburger stand uh, in uh, South Los Angeles where my immigrant parents, my mom, um, Holocaust survivor, Ashwood survivor. Um, and my dad, a uh, Holocaust refugee, got the last train out of Warsaw in 1939. Um, uh, uh, brought up uh, me and my two brothers, uh, and uh, they. I was the first in my family to graduate from high school, uh, the first to go to college, first to go to professional school and, um, they instilled in me, uh, a, uh, a strong, uh, ethic, uh, there at the hamburger stand food, fair takeout was the name of it. Uh, we had three rules, John. The first rule was always do the right thing, no matter the cost. Um, the second rule was always be loyal. And the third rule was always serve the best hamburger you can. And uh, whether I'm serving hamburgers or uh, legal briefs or think tank reports or new uh, NGOs, uh, I bear those rules in mind uh, every day.
1: Politico now says you're one of the 50 foremost thinkers shaping American politics. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's definitely a double edged sword compliment. What do you think is the state of American politics today?
0: Well, if I'm one of the 50 foremost thinkers shaping it, American politics must be in crisis. And it is. And of course, um, um the the crisis is uh the evidence of crisis is well known the conclusion that i draw is um debated uh and debatable um and the evidence of crisis is that um and the My friends, the political scientists, Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann, wrote about this and warned me of it and gave me their book about it to give to President Obama when I was working in the White House in 2009. The crisis is the widening asymmetrical dysfunction of our political parties, John. Both parties struggle with a certain amount of you know, partisanship and uh, saying things that are political and rhetorical and doing, you know, special interest, undue special interest influence. But one of the parties has gone off the deep end, and that is the GOP. And this really started when uh, we were in the White House and Mitch McConnell said, His number one goal, instead of bailing us out of the subprime financial collapse, which you and I have talked about and worked on in institutional investor circles, um, or dealing with the other crises, afflicting America as Obama became president, his number one goal was to defeat President Obama. What? That kind of partisanship has led us, there's a direct line from that, to McConnell's Frankenstein monster, Donald Trump, uh, and the big lie that Trump, that the election was stolen, and the QAnon conspiracy theorists who are taking over the Republican Party, the metastasization of what we saw during the Trump era, um, the complete uh, 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 abdication of any idea of truth or evidence, it's very like how Vladimir Putin is defending his illegitimate invasion, his aggression against Ukraine, uh, the uh, naked uh, theft, uh, um, uh, the violations of ethics rules, um, Trump taking raking in money from <laughs> a conflicted um, parties in the United States and foreign countries while he's president. Uh, and the um, just the, the the sacrifice of the public interest to naked self-interest. We saw that in the impeachment that I worked on as counsel for the House Democrats for the impeachment and trial of Trump involving, what else Ukraine? Where Trump says to the Ukrainian president when he's begging for javelins, uh, now we know why he needed them. Uh, Trump says, uh, we'd like you to do us a favor, though and that is to get dirt on his opponent. He holds American help hostage. Um, That culminated in the big lie that the election was stolen. Trump willing to say or do anything to hang on to power. And John, the crisis is, we won that struggle, but the big lie metastasized. And all over the country, we're seeing efforts to change the rules that protected our election in 2020 to change the election officials, that is the referees, so they can change the results. Trump, QAnon, the big lie, Steve Bannon and his. And that's crept into the Republican party where he had over 140 members of the Republican Congressional Caucus, a majority of the members of the House who voted to, not to accept legitimate election results in one or more states. So change the rules, change the referees to change the results. R times R equals uh, uh, R. That is the formula for crisis that we're confronting today and nobody knows if our American experiment with democracy can survive that crisis. Well, let's
1: take that long view. Do you think there are enduring characteristics of the American democracy that 100 years from now, historians will look back and say, Look, it was obvious that they would endure, even through your described crisis, much the way that in retrospect, people think the outcome of the civil war was inevitable. Do you you think that we endure or does something happen that literally breaks apart the democracy?
0: Personally, uh, I believe we will endure because the history uh, of the American experiment, the dynamism of the state and local leaders in and outside of government, who I saw up close in 2020 as the co-chair of the Bipartisan States United Democracy Center with former GOP governor and cabinet member Christy Todd Whitman, and the vitality of um, our um, American uh, rule of law and electoral systems, all three of those are strong enough determinants that I can unpack them for you, that I think If we all put our shoulder to the wheel, we can survive, but it's not guaranteed. And we're really going to need a kind of Dunkirk the same way the British sent every boat, the fishing boats and the dinghies across the English Channel. We need to do the same thing um, now, particularly with the federal um, comprehensive response to the democracy crisis failing because mostly because of the unanimous GOP opposition, this disease that I've described to you, refusing to approve um, the uh, Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It fell to a filibuster. Um, uh, there were also two Democrats who declined to change the filibuster rules. So it wasn't only the GOP, but it was mostly the GOP. Um, I think with all of that, um, with the failure of the federal legislative response, we're gonna need to send every democracy vote in and outside of government, including state and local government and the people of America and civil society. But yes, I I do think uh, it can it can um, survive if we do that. Survive and thrive. Let me ask a, a narrow subset
1: of that. When I was growing up, I was always told two things about the presidency. First, anyone could grow up to be president. But second, I was told that even the president isn't above the law. Is that still true? I mean, we see a Justice Department policy prohibiting certain types of charges against the city president, which as far as I understand is nowhere in the constitution. And we've learned that a combination of money, power, delay and legal maneuvering can at least stall and maybe neuter the legal system. Now I should note that I'm not pronouncing former president Trump guilty or innocent of any particular charge, but asking whether the fundamental principle of no one is above the law is still true in America, or perhaps wasn't ever true.
0: The idea, John, that no one is above the law is an aspiration. Uh, and we measure um, progress by how effectively we're able to slightly reduce the exceptions. In every generation, so uh, it, it's never been true, and <laughs> I dare say it never will be true that actually nobody, you know, that that all in America who sh- should be held to account uh, to justice uh, are brought before the law. That being said, when when we we began. Uh, America was conceived constitutionally, um, with um, putting slaveholders uh, above the law, and with and 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 enslaved people below the law. Right, so it's there in the, it's there in our founding documents in the Constitution, and we've gradually worked to address the. Um, the terrible exceptions and injustices of uh, racial discrimination, the disparate treatment of women, and you know, were women, women suffrage uh, being brought in. So there's been exceptions. The civil rights movements. We're still very the rich and powerful have much more legal impunity. They're able to overcome the law by hiring high priced. Attorneys, of uh, which before I turned to exclusively pro bono ventures, I was one. Uh, I won't tell you that my legal career, I was never hired by somebody to fight, to fight the law. To fight Are you the conflating
1: power. the law and justice because slaveholding was the law? Women being on having unequal rights yeah, was the
0: law. I am conflating. I am pointing out the, when we say nobody is above the law, that in order for that to be a moral posture, that is an aspiration of, of, of conflating the law and justice. The whole point of the American experiment is to bring law and justice closer together. And John, you see that in the, the founding fathers and mothers and the framers of the Constitution saying, our law is unjust. Jefferson expressing misgivings about slavery, even when he's a slaveholder. So our mission is to bring the law into alignment with justice and to aim for the day, even if we never achieve it, when no one is above the law. And that will be a just, and no one is above justice either. And that will be, a, that, will be that day will never come in on earth. That's a kind of perfection. Let's move away from
1: US politics for a second. You were ambassador to the Czech Republic and actually wrote a great book, uh Democracy's Defenders, about the little known role that the US and actually particularly then US ambassador, Republican ambassador, Shirley Temple Black, played in the Velvet Revolution that replaced communism with democracy and what was then Czechoslovakia. While we like the Outside In podcast to take a long-term view, we are recording this in spring 2022 as Russia continues to invade Ukraine. So it would be almost negligent not to ask you whether your time as an ambassador in Eastern Europe or your research about the role of the Velvet Revolution that overthrew Soviet oppression gives you any insight into what the future might bring vis-a-vis Russia, the Ukraine, and how all that will impact the world going forward.
0: Well, John, another thing that you and I have talked about from time to time, and that I talk about a lot with our common friends who work in the corporate governance and uh, institutional investor and ESG spaces is anti-corruption. And I think I'm going to start there on the impact because, you know, some of us for years, in my case, for decades, have been warning that um, the toleration of state capture by Putin, um, although in his case, he's captured Putin and his corrupt cronies have captured the state, and he's redirecting it. Uh, official corruption in the United States it it takes the form of the special interests that I started out talking to you about, who exist in both parties, John. Um, it's not something that's unique. I think it's much it's become much much worse. The GOP exists in both parties. Um, the correct this sheer corruption. Um. Now everyone understands why I was shouting from the rooftops. You may have come to some of my events in Prague when I was ambassador the World Forum on Governance, warning that corruption was a danger to democracy. That has become mainstream in the past months. It wasn't just the role of Putin's corruption in empowering him to take control of Russia so he could. Unopposed by the usual democratic mechanisms, uh, exercise his will. But the pushback, the m- main pushback uh, on Putin has been a one two punch of economic countermeasures, sanctions countermeasures that are a maturation of anti corruption measures against oligarchs and others that we've, and Putin personally, that we've been, I've been calling for and our allies. John, you and I are friends and allies in the um, corporate governance and ESG world have been calling for for years, decades in some cases. Um, and, of course, providing arms and uh, providing uh, a moral support. That's the one, two, three punch that the West is providing.
1: What are the interesting developments to me? Has been the amplification of your one, two, three punch by non state actors, whether it is Mm -hmm. businesses with touring or a 19 year old kid tracking Russian oligarchs, yachts, or anonymous hacking Russian systems. Um, and one of the, and institutional investors in the investing community have obviously, um, Stepped in in some places, in other places not, but rushes out of the indices um, and all those things. And as you mentioned, you and I have often worked on institutional investor issues in the past. And your legal practice actually was included the Enron and Refco frauds and bankruptcies. Yes. So, so you have this interesting interdisciplinary knowledge base across capital markets and government. Why do you think it's important? for investors to be involved in society more broadly than we have? And what specifically are some of the things you wish investors would do today?
0: Well, um, I believe it's important for investors to be broadly engaged in uh, addressing Systemically important societal issues um, because first of all it goes right to their fiduciary duties to maximize returns for their um beneficiaries and you know investors who disregarded the corruption risks including uh, uh investing in pension funds who invested in companies that looked the other way at Russian corruption or um, made private equity or direct investments in Russian corrupt assets. By the way, I could you could fill in the blank. Uh, this is not limited to Russia. You know, we we were warning of the risks Um Corruption is a leading indicator for uh harm to um, to the uh, stewardship of uh, um the funds that are that need to be uh, protected for retirees and other beneficiaries so and and that extends. The question is what are those issues, right? Nobody wants to invest in North Korea because of sanctions and other reasons you can't. Um, But where do we draw the line around the regimes and the issues? How, for example, I'll I'll give you a test case. You know, obviously, we're all invested in China in various ways. How do we balance? Because I think the risk is greater than people realize with respect to China because it is also a corrupt regime. How do we balance that risk with the need for returns? Or let me, so I, lest I be accused of jingoism, xenophobia, nativism, and populism, what about the risks to democracy? I guess I'll now be accused of partisanship. What about the risks of the democracy uh, in the United States that you asked about, John? this threat to American democracy. My Brookings colleagues um, adju- at, uh, uh, at my encouragement uh, and, and with some um, uh, a friendly kibitzing, Bill Galston, the Wall Street Journal columnist, and Elaine K. Mark, the reinventing government expert, just produced a paper on whether The threat to American democracy constitutes a systemic risk for institutional investors. And they argue that we are backsliding towards systemic risk, that the trends are perilous. And therefore, what's the payoff? Institutional investors should be engaging, which is where we started with your question, John. Not just on Russia, not just saying to companies. You know, you should be a part of these sanctions regime. You should withdraw. You should not support the Russian regime in any way. But right here at home in the United States, they should be talking to governors and legislatures and saying, hey, the decisions you're making are posing a risk for our beneficiaries. So
1: let me ask a lighter question. Um- When you were special counsel for ethics and government reform in the Obama White House, you were the nickname of Mr. No. In fact, President Obama once famously said that there was a simple way to determine what you would allow an administration official to do. If it sounds like fun, he said, you can't go. Given that some people might think you're a bit of a scold and a killjoy. So here's your opportunity to correct that impression. What's something you do in your personal life that's wild and crazy, and wouldn't fit with your public persona?
0: I mean, do you uh, go
1: past the speed limit when driving on an empty highway?
0: Well, uh, I danced in my seat at the halftime show at the Super Bowl, John. I don't know if that. I don't know if that counts. Uh, and. What is something...
1: So, Norm was was dancing to Dr.
0: Dre. Uh, it was an incredible halftime show. I'm an L.A. boy, as we talked about at the beginning, and I rooted for the Rams growing up. And when they came back, it was the second postseason. I also attended the Dodgers. I went back to L.A. for a Dodgers postseason game. Um, and so, when the Rams came back to L.A., was an opportunity to go to the Super Bowl, cheer on my team, and I'll generalize that. So I was dancing like a teenager in that halftime show. I was not a great dancer when I was a teenager, and I'm I'm probably even worse now. Uh, and, you know, if you had a, a secret camera on me, you would often find me uh, 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 boogieing around my house as I listened to music As I uh, cook, or uh, you know, or clean, or do whatever around the house. So that is, I do like to, uh, I do love to dance and move my body. Keeps me young.
1: Let me in with some quick Q and A's. What are you reading right now?
0: Just finished John Le Carre, um, The Secret Pilgrim. Uh, I'm reading. uh books for my next book my fifth book which is coming out which is which I'm getting started on which will be set in LA and so I'm reading books of Los Angeles history uh architecture and culture and I alternate between history and fiction so my most recent one was John le Carré The Secret Pilgrim I'm reading this uh these Los Angeles uh, history books, and then I'm going to pivot to my next fiction. Will be, I, I have it next to my bed. The Underground Railroad by Colson uh, Whitehead.
1: Last question: If you were given the ability to magically
0: whisper into everyone's ear, what would you tell them? Well, I think I, I think my this family. Rules, uh, those three hamburger stand rules are good ones, and they're a good place for us to end. Always do the right thing. You know, that's. you talked about it. Obama writes about it in his memoir. My uh, advice that if it's fun, you can't do it is a kind of corollary to that. Um, Always be loyal and uh, always serve the best hamburger you can. Thanks
1: very much. You've been listening to Outside In with our very special guest, Norm Eisen. Norm, as you've heard, um, has a very developed sense of justice, law, ethics, and what the future of the American democracy should be and how it potentially is endangered and how we can unendanger it, if there is such a word. Thanks so much, Norm. Thanks, John. Great being with you. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, or we'd love it if you'd leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, Sign up for our newsletter
0: on sparknetwork.com.